0: I'm battling a little bit of a cold, and so everything sounds like I'm in an echo chamber up here. Open your Bibles to Matthew chapter 2. Matthew chapter 2. As our children are leaving this morning, that's our text for this morning on this Christmas Sunday. Again, I want to remind you, this Christmas Eve, 6 o'clock, is our candlelight. Service, it tends to fill up pretty quickly, and so looking forward to that night. Well, Jim and Della were a young couple that was barely making ends meet, as this young couple, and they lived in a small apartment, and it was Christmas Eve. And both Jim and Della wondered what they were going to get each other for Christmas because they barely had enough money to survive. And so it's Christmas Eve and, and Della has two dollars in her pocket and she's desperate. She's like, what can I get my husband to show him how much I love him? And to see the thing that Della really was proud of was she had this long flowing blonde hair down to her waist. It was her pride and joy. Her husband loved this long blonde hair. Her husband's pride and joy was this pocket watch that His dad had given to him that was even handed down from his grandfather. So it was a family heirloom, this pocket watch. So Jim had the pocket watch. Della had the long flowing hair. And so on Christmas Eve, Della goes out with $2 in her hand, and she sells her hair to a hairdresser for $20 so that she can go buy Jim a gift. And so with the $2 in her pocket and the $20 she got from selling her hair, she goes and she buys a chain for Jim's watch. And she comes home excited on Christmas Eve, ready to, to bake dinner, and Jim walks in and sees his wife without her long hair. He freaks out and says, "What in the world's going on?" And she says, "Listen, honey, I wanted to give you a very special Christmas present, so I sold my hair." And he's like, "Well, that's great. I bought you this really expensive hair accessory kit that's specifically for long hair. It's useless now. And she's like, well, let me give you the gift that I got you with my hair. It's, it's, a, it's a chain for your pocket watch. And he says, well, I sold my pocket watch to buy your hair accessories. This is the story, The Gift of the Magi. You may have read this in high school. It's the short story by O. Henry. It was written in the early 1900s and at the end of The Gift of the Magi, the narrator comes in and talks about how this couple with this plot twist really expresses the generosity and love and sacrifice at Christmas time that we see in the Magi as they came from the East to worship the Christ child, the gift of the Magi. Just who in the world were these wise men? Were there three of them? Where did they come from? Have you ever wondered the story? I've never preached on this before, and it's an interesting story. It's an amazing story recorded in Matthew's Gospel. We've got the story of the the wise men, the magi from the east. And they come and they visit Christ, the newborn king. So let's read this together in Matthew chapter 2, verses 1 through 12. The visit of the wise men. Now, the word we get magi, it's, it's the Greek word for wise men. Your, your translation may say magi or it may say wise men, um, but that's the actual word used in the original language to describe these men. Now, after Jesus was born in Bethlehem of Judea in the days of Herod the king, behold, wise men or magi. From the east came to Jerusalem saying, where is he who was born king of the Jews? For we saw his star And going into the house, they saw the child with Mary his mother, and they fell down and worshipped him. Then opening their treasures, they offered him gifts, gold and frankincense and myrrh. And being warned in a dream not to return to Herod, they departed to their own country by another way. This is a dramatic story of contrasts. Contrasts between the way that the Magi received Jesus... Over against the way that Herod received Jesus. Joy to the world. You guys finish it. Joy to the world. The Lord is. Let earth receive her king. Let every heart prepare him room and heaven and nature sing. Joy to the world. The Lord is come. Let earth receive her what? King. Let earth receive her king. Let every what? Heart do what? I'm making sure you're awake this morning. Let every heart prepare Him room. So here's the question for you this morning. Here's the question for you this morning. How will you receive Jesus as your King this Christmas? Will you receive Jesus as your King? Will your heart prepare Him room? So what I want us to do as we look at this passage of scriptures, I want us to really look at three diametrically opposed situations here between the Magi and Herod, how, how these contrasts play out because it's diametric. It's, 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 there's this huge um, opposition or contrast between the way that the wise man received Jesus as king and the way Herod receives Jesus as king. And so what I want us to do is just look at these contrasts this morning. So here's contrast number one. It's a very interesting one. The Magi were pagan Gentiles, while Herod was, quote, the king of the Jews. Now, you may wonder, when was Jesus born? It says there in verse 1 Now, after Jesus was born in Bethlehem, in the days, in the Judea, in the days of Herod the king, behold, wise men from the east came to Jerusalem. When was Jesus born? Was it 0 AD? Most scholars believe that Jesus was born between 4 and 5 bc and it was not in in december it was probably in april sometime in the spring and most scholars also believe that probably by the time that the wise men showed up jesus was probably two years old he wasn't in the manger it says that they were in a house so theologically accurate historically accurate if you have a nativity scene with wise men with the shepherd it makes a cute nativity scene, but it's not historically or theologically accurate. It's okay. I'm not against you for having that, but this is probably two years after the shepherds, two years of what we looked at last, year, last week. They're staying in a house. The, the way that the historians kind of look at all the historical events and the math, Jesus is probably two years old. But verse 1 says these magi came from the east. Now who are these guys? Who, who are these magi? Doesn't say they were kings. Doesn't say there were three of them. Now, they gave three gifts, which have meant many scholars to believe that maybe there were three kings, but are three kings or three magi? We really don't know. We just know that they were from the East. Most scholars believe this about the magi they were probably astrologers, not astronomers, but astrologers looking at constellations in the zodiac, or they had this supernatural ability to interpret dreams. And they were from either Persia or Babylon. Modern day Iraq or Iran. Persia or Babylon. They came from the east. But here's the bottom line. They weren't Israelites. They did not grow up knowing any of this stuff. They were pagan, Gentile foreigners. They were sorcerers, if you will, whom God chose to draw to Jesus. Isn't that just the way God works? God reaches to the farthest ends of the earth to bring pagans out of their idolatry to come and worship Jesus. And that's what he's doing with the wise men. God is sovereignly drawing them out of pagan darkness to come worship Jesus. Isaiah chapter 60 verse 3 says this, and nations shall come to your light and kings to the brightness of your rising. That's what's going on here. The nations, the pagan nations are coming to Jesus. Now let me just stop and say why it's so important that that we as a church give to the Lottie Moon Christmas offering. Our goal as a church, and you saw the video earlier, $6,000. Every amount of money that goes to that offering goes directly to the foreign mission field to support 5,000 missionaries. 5,000 missionaries are directly supported through this offering. All of our churches together are combining millions and millions of dollars. But here's the thing. We have close relationships with missionaries around the world. We have close relationships with missionaries in India. As a matter of fact, I just talked to them yesterday. They are out of India, and they're moving on to their next place. We have missionary partners in Russia. We have missionary partners all over the world. And so here's what the Lottie Moon Christmas offering enables them to do. With this offering, they can be fully funded to where they have their full salary, their full benefits, their full health insurance, and usually a car to be able to do ministry so they don't have to come back to the states to raise funds. And so that's why we give to the offering. But it's not just to support the missionaries. Here's the issue. There are over one billion people right now on planet Earth living in pagan idolatry, whether it's in Hinduism, Buddhism, or any other type of ism that have never heard the name of Jesus. And we are sending people to the pagan nations to send the light of the gospel. So, from the very beginning here, it's very interesting God is a missionary God. Do you see this in the Christmas story? God's a missionary God. From the very beginning, God says, I'm going to go find some pagan astrologers that are way out in the backside of nowhere from the east, and I'm going to sovereignly draw them to Jesus. That's what we do with missions. We go and send missionaries to the dark reaches of the world, to, to to the closed countries, to places where people have never heard the gospel so that they can shine the light of Jesus to pagans living in idolatry. And so here's the question. Paul asks Paul asked this interesting question in Romans ten thirteen through fifteen. He says this: Everyone who calls on the name of the Lord will be saved. Well, how then will they call on Him whom they've not believed? And how are they to believe in Him whom they've never heard? And how are they to hear without someone preaching? And how are they to preach unless they're sent? As it is written, how beautiful are the feet of those who preach the good news. Paul's saying, listen, people need to call on Jesus to be saved. How are they going to call on Jesus to be saved if nobody's ever told them about Jesus? Well, if nobody's ever told them about Jesus, how are we going to get people to tell them about Jesus? We've got to send people to tell them about Jesus. That's what missions is all about. Carl Henry said this, the gospel is only good news if it gets there on time. That's why we send missionaries. And so from the very beginning here, in the, in the Christmas story, we see God as a missionary God. He's drawing the pagan nations to himself in these wise men. Now let's get back to the story. What do we do with the star? What do we do with the star? This famous star that rose over Bethlehem, was this some type of astronomical phenomenon? Some scientific anomaly that's, that's, that's been, been hard to explain? There's been a lot of explanations. Kepler, the famous scientist back in the the 1600s, said that in 7 BC there was a a conjunction of Jupiter and Saturn that created this huge um, astronomical phenomenon in the constellation Pisces, and that's the star. But historians have debunked that because it's too early. Was it a supernova? Some people have even said maybe it was Halley's Comet. Here's the point. Matthew's burden is not to give us all the astronomical data for us to try to explain what this means. Here's the point. It's a miracle. Isn't that what God does in the Bible? If God wants to have a star from the east come and rise over Bethlehem, God has sovereign rights to do that. He can, he can, he can go across all of the astronomical or biological or, or any type of, of, of phenomenon, scientific phenomena out there, and do a miracle. Listen to what Isaiah 40, verse 25 through 26 says about God. God says, to whom shall you compare me, that I should be like him? Says the Holy One, lift up your eyes and see. Who created these? He's talking about the stars. Who created these? He who brings out their hosts by number, calling them by name, by the greatness of his might. And because he's strong in power, not one is missing. Now, God called that star by name and said, go and stop over the house. And God can do that because he created the stars and he's sovereign over the stars and he's miraculously doing this. So, so just don't worry about all the, the, the astronomical phenomenon of when it happened. Take it as a miracle that God did this in his sovereignty. But there's a prophecy in the Old Testament about a star. Now, the question is, what kind of star are we talking about? Are we talking about a literal astronomical star or are we talking about a symbolic star that's going to shine? Numbers... Chapter 24, verse 17 says this, a star shall come out of Jacob and a scepter shall rise out of Israel. Now look at the wording. You've got a star and you've got a king. Verse 2, where is he who was born king of the Jews? For we saw his star when it rose and have come to worship him. The combination of the word king and star together Matthew's drawing our attention to say, listen, Old Testament prophecy predicted that a king would rise out of Judah and he would be the star. He would be the light. He would be the one through whom everything revolves around. He would be the light of the world. And so the fact that the star is shining over the house is pointing to the fact that in that very Christ child, Jesus Christ is the king. He's the light of the world. What do stars do? They shine. They, bright, they shine brightly. What did Jesus say about himself in John eight twelve? Again, Jesus spoke to them, saying, I am the light of the world. Whoever follows me will not walk in darkness, but will have the light of light. So here's the implications of this first contrast. God is a missionary God who's calling pagan idolater, sorcerer, astrologers out of darkness to come worship the true light, Jesus, the light of the world. From the very beginning, God's a missionary God. And his desire is to go to the darkest, deepest parts of the world where people are living in pagan idolatry and draw them out of that to come to Jesus in the light. Now, what do we know about Herod? Is Herod a Gentile pagan living in the deep, dark jungles of Africa? No, he's the king of the Jews. He's a puppet dictator. Really, the ultimate king at this time was Caesar Augustus. He was the Roman emperor. And he basically set up Herod as a puppet dictator. And so he was a pretty cruel dictator, Herod was. He was known to have put his own people, the Israelites, in slavery. He raised oppressive taxes on the people, forced them to do slave labor. Think about last week. Where did God announce the birth of Jesus? Did he announce it to Herod? Did he announce it to the kings? He announced it to shepherds. Shepherds who were outcast, shepherds who were scum, shepherds who were um, not believable, shepherds who were on the backside of nowhere. God said, here's the way I'm announcing the birth of Jesus. I'm announcing it to nobodies. And what does he do now? I'm drawing the foreigners, the pagans, the astrologers, the ones in idolatry, I'm drawing them to Jesus. So here's the question. How are you going to respond to the birth of Jesus as the light of the world? Will you follow him as your light? The light of the world. God loves to seek and save the lost. We see it in his going to the shepherds and announcing that to the shepherds. We see it in the magi. God has a heart for lost people. And he wants us to have a heart for lost people to share the gospel, to share the light to the darkness. just stop and think about this you can sit here all day long and complain about how dark this world is how bad this world is how dark this world is and i will sit there and say yeah you have every right to complain about how dark it is but guess what here's the issue they're living in darkness and they need a light who's the light you and i are the light So we can sit here and complain all we want or we can go with them with the light of Jesus and say, listen, God can rescue you out of this darkness. God can take you out of this darkness. The pit that you find yourself in, God can take you out of that because Jesus is the light of the world. He can change your circumstances. He can change this culture. He can change this world if you and I are willing to go share him as the light. Contrast number two. The Magi had no... Formal training in Old Testament prophecy, but they were drawn to Jesus. While Herod had head knowledge of Old Testament prophecy, yet was clueless and apathetic toward Jesus. Now we don't know anything about these Magi. I- I'm not sure if they study their Old Testament or not. The Bible doesn't say. But they didn't have a Bible, they probably didn't come with the Bible in their hand saying, Where's Jesus? God is sovereignly working through a star to bring them there. Now, they may have known something about this, but, but, but they didn't know any of the stuff. But the question is, who should have known? Who's the one who should have had their Old Testament history? Who's the one that's Jewish? Who's the one that would have known that the Christ child was born in Bethlehem? Herod, but he's clueless. Look at verse 4. What does Herod do? assembling all the chief priests and scribes of the people, he inquired of them, where's this Christ going to be born? <laughs> Duh. Even a five-year-old Jewish kid would have told you, uh, Herod, it's in Bethlehem. The scrolls tell us that. We learned this in synagogue all growing up. If there was anybody that knew where Jesus was going to be born, it was Herod. He's a Jew. He, he should have known this, but he's clueless. He has no idea. He has to ask his, his chief priests and his scribes, Where, where's, where's the Messiah going to be born? In Bethlehem. And here's the implication. You can have a lot of head knowledge. You can even have a lot of Bible knowledge. And you can know facts and figures about this Bible and still not be saved. Knowing facts and figures and having certain type of head knowledge of certain things is good to have, but it doesn't give you a relationship with Jesus Christ. It comes through faith alone, where you're totally trusting Jesus Christ as your Lord and Savior, not just head knowledge, not just facts and figures. Only personally trusting in Jesus Christ is going to save you. Now, what was prophesied about Jesus in the Old Testament? What we have here in verse 6 It's kind of a shortened prophecy from Micah chapter 5 and 2 Samuel chapter 2. And so what I want us to do is I want us to look at Micah chapter 5. It'll be on your screen. But there's a lot going on in Micah chapter 5 that tells us about Jesus being born. So I want to just like briefly show you. Because he says there in verse 6, And you, O Bethlehem, in the land of Judah, are by no means least among the rulers of Judah. For from you shall come a ruler who will shepherd my people Israel. That's a kind of a a paraphrase of Micah. So here we go, Micah. But you, O Bethlehem, Epaphra, who are too little to be among the clans of Judah, from you shall come forth for me. One is to be ruler in Israel. Okay, so number one, he's going to be ruler in Israel. Jesus is coming as the king whose coming forth is from old, from ancient of days. Therefore, he shall give them up until the time when she who's in labor has given birth. Then the rest of the brothers shall return to the people of Israel, and he shall stand and shepherd his flock in the strength of the Lord, in the majesty of the name of the Lord his God. And they shall dwell secure for now. He shall be great to the ends of the earth, and he shall be their peace. Is there any Kleenex up here? Yes there is. Thank you. <laughs> Excuse me. So, this prophecy tells us a lot of things about Jesus. Number 1, he's going to come as the king. He's going to come as the king. Number 2, he's of ancient of days. Meaning that Jesus' birth is going to be supernatural. He's going to be born of a virgin. Jesus is the preexistent Son of God. He's always existed in eternity past. So John 1, 1 says, In the beginning was the Word, and the Word was with God, and the Word was God. Talking about Jesus. He's going to rule as a good shepherd. He will shepherd the people. What did Jesus say about himself in John ten 11? I'm the good shepherd. The good shepherd lays down his life for the sheep. Jesus will rule for the glory and majesty of His name. Jesus' fame will go to the ends of the earth. And it says Jesus will be their peace. Ephesians 2, 13-14. But now in Christ Jesus, you who were once far off have been brought near by the blood of Christ. For He Himself is our peace, who has made us both one and has broken down in His flesh the dividing wall of hostility. Now, some of you may have seen Talladega Nights and the Ricky Bobby Baby Jesus. Some of you have no idea what I'm talking about. Culturally, there's this whole concept that we love the baby Jesus. He's cute. He's cuddly. He's non-threatening. The little baby in a manger, that's the Jesus I want. One that doesn't threaten me, one that doesn't tell me what to do. I like the cute baby Jesus. I'll pray to the cute baby Jesus. But this prophecy says that he has come to be the king. Revelation chapter 19, 11-15 tells us how Jesus is going to come back. He was born a baby in a manger. He died on the cross and rose again. He's in heaven right now, but he's coming back. And when he comes back, he's coming back as king. Listen to the wording. Then I saw heaven open, and behold, a white horse. The one sitting on it is called Faithful and True, and in righteousness he judges and makes war. His eyes are like a flame of fire, and on his head are many diadems, that's crowns. He has a name written that no one knows but himself. He's clothed in a robe dipped in blood, and the name by which he's called is the Word of God. And the armies of heaven arrayed in fine linen, white and pure, were following him on white horses. For from his mouth comes a sharp sword with which to strike down the nations, and he will rule them with a rod of iron. He will tread the winepress of the fury of the wrath of God the Almighty. That's the Jesus is coming back. Are you ready for that, Jesus? The one born king to shepherd, to lead, to rule. Let's look at contrast number three. The Magi worshipped King Jesus with great joy, but Herod was threatened by King Jesus with great distress. Look at verse 10. How did the respond when they saw the star rising above the house. Verse 10, when they saw the star, they rejoiced exceedingly with great joy. That's a pile on of Greek words in the original text. They, mega joy, increasing joy, great joy, amazing joy, they rejoiced with great rejoicing. It almost sounds redundant and that's the point. It was a great rejoicing which led them to do what? In verse 11, they go in the house, they see the baby Jesus and they fall down and they worship and they give him gifts. Gold, frankincense, and myrrh. Again, it shows that God is drawing these pagan Gentiles to come and worship. He's put the joy of the Lord in their heart to come worship Jesus. Gold, only fitting for a king. Frankincense was this glittering type of gum, this this aromatic, uh, odorous gum that came off of the bark of trees. Myrrh was used for embalming. Now, some people have said there's symbolism in these three gifts. I have no idea. The Magi don't tell us there's symbolism in the gifts. Matthew don't tell us the symbolism is in the gifts. I don't know why there's three gifts. I don't know what they symbolize. All I know is in that culture, these were gifts fitting for a king. They were fitting for a king. So from the very beginning, the Magi knew that Jesus was their king. Even though he was king of the Jews, they're from a pagan land. They're from Persia. They're from Babylon. It didn't matter. Jesus transcended their national ethnicity, their nationality, their place of residence. They came and worshipped and said, this is the true king whom we are worshipping. God in the flesh. Jesus Christ. King of kings. I'm bowing before him. I'm worshipping him. I'm giving him gifts. I'm I'm having great joy in worshipping this king. But how did Herod respond? Was he exuberant with joy? Did he bring gifts? What does verse 3 say? When Herod the king heard this, he was troubled, and all Jerusalem with him. He was troubled. It's a tame translation. It means paranoid, greatly distressed, freaked out. He was threatened. Herod murdered one of his wives, one of his wives, I should tell you about his morality, and murdered two of his sons because he was threatened that they were going to take over the throne. He was known for being paranoid, being insecure. He's panicked. He's threatened. And he says to the wise men, hey, find out where this king's born so I can go worship him. Yeah, right. That was not his plan. His plan was to murder Jesus. You want to see it unfold? You want to see the anger, the hatred, the persecution, the opposition, the agitation of Herod against Jesus? Let's just keep reading. Pick up in verse 13. Let's see what happens next. Now, when they had departed, behold, an angel of the Lord appeared to Joseph in a dream and said, "Rise, take the child and his mother, and flee to Egypt, and remain there until I tell you. For Herod is about to search for the child to destroy him." You see what the word there? Herod is gonna wants to destroy Jesus. Ah, that's pretty. That's 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 not worship. To destroy Jesus. And he rose and took the child and his mother by night and departed to Egypt and remained there until the death of Herod. This was to fulfill what the Lord had spoken by the prophet out of Egypt, I called my son. Then Herod, when he saw that he had been tricked by the wise men, became furious And he sent and killed all the male children in Bethlehem and in all that region who were two years old or under according to the time that he had ascertained from the wise man. Then was fulfilled what was spoken by the prophet Jeremiah. A voice was heard in Ramah, weeping in loud lamentation, Rachel weeping for her children. She refused to be comforted because they are no more. Here's the bottom line about Jesus as king. He's either going to bring you joy or he's going to threaten your security. He's either going to bring you joy or he's going to threaten your security. Now, think about this for a moment. None of you here are going to be like Herod, where you're going to want to go destroy Jesus and kill all the the, the firstborn males in your neighborhood because you're upset that they're threatening your security. But let me just ask you a very basic question Do you really want someone to tell you how to live? Do you really want someone to tell you what to believe? Do you really want someone that says, listen, you need to give me all of yourself? Do you really want someone to say that you need to surrender your rights and and, and come and take up your cross and follow me and deny yourself and you need to repent and believe in me and it's all or nothing, it's all about me? Do you really want someone that comes and threatens your security and says, it's all or nothing, follow me as king? Are you threatened by that? You see, here's the two ways you can respond to that. When Jesus comes to you and says, I want your all, you can respond to him with joy and say, Jesus, I'm willing to give you my all because I love you. Or you can say, Jesus, no way. You will not have my all because you threaten me. Listen to what Jesus says in the Gospel of Luke. In Luke 9, 23 through 25, Jesus said this. If anyone would come after me, Let him deny himself and take up his cross daily and follow me. For whoever would save his life will lose it, but whoever loses his life for my sake will save it. For what does the profit a man if he gains the whole world and loses or forfeits himself? Do you bow to this king and follow him wherever he leads you? Do you take up your cross daily and surrender all your rights to follow him do you surrender to the king do you bow to the king are you willing to give up all to gain your life or are you willing to lose your own soul because you want the whole world see here's what the scripture teaches us about jesus from the very beginning jesus would be persecuted he would be mistreated he would be treated with hostility and resentment from the very beginning Was it any different the rest of Jesus' life? Was Jesus treated with persecution, hostility, and resentment the rest of his life? Yes. And what did it culminate to? It culminated to the cross where he experienced the ultimate in resentment, the ultimate in hostility, the ultimate in persecution by being murdered at the hands of evil men. In essence, you can say this, Jesus' whole purpose in being born was so that he would suffer and die. Now verse 2 says what? Look back at verse 2. Where is he who's been born what? King of the Jews. There's only one other place in the Bible where Jesus is called King of the Jews. It was a sign above his head at the crucifixion. Matthew says it in Matthew 27, 37. Over his head they put the charge against him which read, This is Jesus, the King of the Jews. Jesus was born the King of the Jews. Jesus died, the king of the Jews. But here's the interesting thing about God's sovereignty. You ever thought about this before? Here's God's sovereignty in action. When Jesus was two years old, God sovereignly intervened to rescue him from death. God intervened in a dream and said, Joseph and Mary, get out of Bethlehem, go down to Egypt, escape there. I will protect you because it was not the fullness of time. God intervened. God saved Jesus. God prevented Herod from destroying Jesus when he was two. But about 30 years later, on the cross, did God intervene to save Jesus? Did God say, Jesus, I'm going to send you down to Egypt so you can escape the cross? No, God didn't intervene to save Jesus. God intervened to kill Jesus as king of the Jews so that he could take our punishment, so that all the hostility, all of the rebellion, all of the persecution that we would have towards Jesus He would take as our punishment. Listen to Isaiah 53. Surely He's borne our griefs and carried our sorrows. Yet we esteemed Him stricken, smitten by God, and afflicted. But He was pierced for our transgressions. He was crushed for our iniquities. Upon Him was the chastisement that brought us peace, and with His wounds we are healed. All we like sheep have gone astray. We've turned everyone to his own way and the Lord has laid on him. Original Hebrew, the Lord has violently assaulted him with the iniquity of us all. He was oppressed and he was afflicted, yet he opened not his mouth like a lamb that's led to the slaughter and like a sheep that's before its shears is silent, so he opened not his mouth. That's the way Jesus died. You see, in O. Henry's story, The Gift of the Magi, Jim and Della gave generously. They gave sacrificially because they loved each other. The magi came and they gave generously, they gave sacrificially to Jesus as the Christ child because they loved him. But let me just say this. As great as your love is for other people at Christmas time and wanting to give them gifts, and as great as even your love is for Jesus, there's a greater love. It's Jesus' love for you. Listen to 1 John 4.10. In this is love. Not that we've loved God, but that he loved us and sent his son to be the propitiation for our sins. You see two things in this passage of scripture. You can just leave that scripture up there. Number one, God initiates it all. God is the one that pursued us. God's the one that loved us first. God's the one that chose us. God's the one that came to us. God's the one that loved us first. The only way we can love others and love God is because he first loved us. He pursued you, he came to you, he sought you. When you were living in pagan idolatry, when you were an outsider, when you were a shepherd on the backside of nowhere, when you were a magi living in idolatry, God came to you and drew you to himself. It all starts with God. But number two, what did he do with Jesus? He sent Jesus to be the propitiation. That's just a big word for Jesus bearing your guilt, Jesus bearing your justice, Jesus taking the punishment that you and I deserve in himself on the cross so that we wouldn't have to experience that punishment because here's the reality. If Jesus had not taken our punishment, every single one of us would experience that punishment and you know what that punishment is? It's hell. It's eternal hell. And so instead of having to suffer eternity in hell separated from God, Jesus took that punishment in our place. Because he loved us. You see, God loved us so much, he spared no expense. He spared no expense. He gave the greatest gift in his very own son. Romans 8, 32. He who did not spare his son, but gave him up for us all, how will he not also with him graciously give us all things? You see, here's the thing. In Bethlehem, in the flight down to Egypt, God spared his son. God saved his son because the timing wasn't right. On the cross, God did not spare his son. God gave his son. Why did he do it? Because of his great love for sinners like you and me so that he could graciously give us all things. So here's the question ultimately as we approach Christmas in just a few days. Will your heart prepare him room will you receive your king he rules the world with truth and grace and makes the nations prove the glories of his righteousness and wonders of his love are you in wonder of his love this morning Are you amazed at God's amazing gift in Jesus Christ, His Son? Do you bow to the newborn King who rules the world in truth and grace? Does Jesus as your King bring you the greatest joy? Or does He threaten your security? May this Christmas be a time where your heart prepares Him room. May this Christmas be a time where you receive him as king. And may this Christmas be a season where you're in wonder at his love. Let me ask you to bow your heads this morning. And I just want you to think about the wonder of his love. Are are you in wonder at the love of Jesus? Are you amazed that he would love you? Are you amazed that God would spare no expense in sending Jesus Christ to die in your place when you did not deserve that so that you could be forgiven, you could be freed, you could receive your king? Spend some time going before this king with great joy. And if he threatens your security this morning, ask him. Ask him to shatter that idol in your heart and to breathe you the joy of the Lord as your strength. Would you spend some time thinking about these words this morning in a time of silent prayer? thankful that you're a missionary God. I love this, that you that you drew these pagan outsiders out of their astrology and out of their darkness to worship Jesus. And and that's only sovereign grace. Nobody would ever come seeking for this king unless, God, you took the initiative to do that. And Father, you've done that with us. We were far off. We were separated. We were in love with ourselves. We were worshiping all manner of things that weren't you, and you drew us to the light of Jesus. You gave us the greatest gift in your Son. Would we bow down like the wise man and with exceeding joy give you our lives as an act of worship? We don't have gold, we don't have frankincense, we don't have myrrh, but we have our lives, we have our hearts. would be generous in giving those to you Jesus but the only way we can do that is because you first gave it to us you first loved us Lord my prayer is if there's anybody here today that's really threatened by you Jesus and they know who they are their, their, their security is threatened by the Lord the King would today be the day that they surrender and bow to Jesus as their King Father my prayer is that as we leave this place every person in this room would prepare you room Our hearts would prepare you. room, Lord, my prayer is that everybody that leaves this place would receive you as king. And that everybody that leaves this place would be in wonder of your love. Thank you for dying on the cross for us and rising again. We love you. We praise you. We honor you. It's in Jesus' name we pray these things. Amen.